Welcome to We Are Scared, the podcast where we dissect and dismember your favorite horror movies. Let's go, girls. Hey, Camille, why are you scared this week? I don't want this to come off the wrong way because it's so exciting and I'm so like overjoyed to be at this part of my life, but a lot of my like best closest friends are getting married Mm. Mm. and it's I love weddings they're so fun it's just wild to realize that my that I am the age where this huge milestone is happening for people and where it's like age appropriate do you know what I mean I realize how much time I've been on this beautiful crazy earth for and it's like just mind-boggling to think about and scary (laughs) to be like oh we're adults and we can fully commit ourselves to another human being you know what I mean that's an okay thing to do yeah Ah, Kiara have you thought of anything I have not have you (laughs) I feel like maybe the line between stress and fear can be pretty thin and like they're symbiotic in a way But I, so I feel like I'm constantly in like a cycle of depression and then I like come out of it for a little bit and I go back in and it's not like debilitating in any way, but I just notice little signs that I'm like entering a more depressive wave. And one of them is that I just cannot for the life of me respond to texts. Mm. I'll see texts, be very like touched by them and then just mean to respond to them and never do it. And then I will remember that I have all of these texts I need to respond to exactly the moment where I cannot respond to the texts and so something Mm. that's freaking that's scaring me this week is just like I am like under a mountain of communications that I haven't responded to yet that I need to so maybe directly after this recording I will just go ahead and conquer my fear and do it like give yourself like a 30 minute block make a cup of coffee or buy yourself like a sugary latte and just sit in your apartment or outside and just put a set a timer for 30 minutes or 30 minutes is a really long time set a timer for 10 minutes and just respond to text no I feel like 30 minutes is good because if I finish it early then I can stop the timer yeah but it's good I think that's important I'm realizing the importance of just like really setting aside a specific amount of time to do things so that I don't start like running off in my head about all these other things I need to be doing instead being an adult is hard I think it's hard too. I try to make myself feel like I am a supreme being when I do things like that. It's like a little added motivation. It's okay. If I respond to all of these messages at the end, I get to feel like a god <laughs> because I just, I got through yeah. it all. But then the problem is then no people reply to your text <laughs> and then it just, well, the cycle begins again. I know, it does, but isn't that great that you constantly get to then feel like you're amazing? Mm. Or you constantly get to feel like you're overwhelmed and terrified of... I really tried, Camille. I tried to give it a positive spin. I did my best. (laughs) It's okay. Okay, I have a feel. I... Okay, the first thing I thought of before we started this recording was was the heat. I really am not a huge fan of being very hot, and I'm also not usually a fan of all the methods that one must employ to avoid feeling uncomfortably hot. What are the methods? 
wearing hardly any clothes. And that's mm. only because, not because I don't enjoy like wearing hardly any clothes, but my issue more is that I get very, I get a lot of unwanted attention <laughs> from people on these streets in New York, and that always unsettles me. And I never know what to do, aside from just walk away. Aside from that, I am making an effort, round two, I have purchased for myself a basil plant, basil plant, and the first one I had died a very tragic death, and I'm trying this time to do much better and keep this one alive, but it is not looking very good. Its leaves are already shriveled, and I've only had it for a week. Mm. Basil plants are so hard to keep alive. Yeah, maybe I really did pick, I picked a bad plant. I picked a bad first run. I've never tried to keep a plant alive before, aside from basil. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I'm scared of. I'm scared it's going to (laughs) die. Wow, mortality just keeps coming back at us. What? Mortality just is a recurring fear. It is. And if it's not the mortality of us, it's the mortality of the things around us. <laughs> Anyone that can keep a plant alive in an apartment in New York, I think, is a god. Yeah, I knew you were going to say that. Please, if anybody has basil plant advice that you would be willing to share with me about how to keep it alive, please tell me. Send us a DM. Or an email. <laughs> I'm so excited to introduce our host that you know and I know and we all know and love Kiara she's going to take us on a journey through this wonderful wonderful wild important film and I am going to pass the baton on over to her Kiara hello Hello, thank you, Camille, for that lovely introduction. I'm surprised that you said to this wonderful, important film, you really did not like this movie. (laughs) But that being said, I am still very glad that we chose to discuss it and include it in this season. This movie came out in 1992. It was directed by Bernard Rose, written and adapted from a short story called The Forbidden by Clive Barker, also written by Bernard Rose and Clive Barker. There is a lot to this movie, and we did our best to get through it all. And without further ado, here is here is our conversation of, of Candyman. Before, so before we jump into the questions that I have written down that are a little more structured, based on themes, as we've done in the past, I would love to hear your first impressions of the movie. Something that I love so much about horrors, and particularly slashers, is... The fact that they're constantly trying to surprise you and like innovating tropes and changing things around and i think that this movie in a very stealthy way identified tropes that could be changed that maybe hadn't even occurred to me and i think that what's an example we have seen the rural urban divide played with pretty significantly this movie managed to look at the gap between people and academic explorations of people and those two things feel so outside the realm of what I would even necessarily consider immediately, except for visiting this project in the town that they're all from. There was no element of traveling far away from where you come from to get to the horror that I think mm. was very present in the other movies. Mm. Yet still, this woman is very much coming into a space of people she doesn't understand or think of as people really fully 
feeling that distance, not in like physical space, but just in social standing was so interesting. And I think that this Candyman being such a complicated quote unquote villain, where you're not really sure what he is or where he is or who really, what is Candyman. Oh, villain too, yeah. I think this movie was just so fresh and so interesting. Mm -hmm. And also, I hate saying ahead of its time, but I thought a lot of the things that it brought up were things that I assumed had only come into the cultural consciousness at like a popular culture, white dominated level until very recently. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but I love this movie. And I did find it to be very scary actually. Yeah, I found this movie to be the most horrifying that we've watched so far. I I don't know if I liked it. I hear what you're saying, but it, to me, it felt like a movie made by white people in 1992 trying to talk about race in a way that is not acceptable in a lot of ways. I think that a lot of the like the Rachel violence and the way that the story about Candyman was told and the brutal murders and the way that there was a lot of lynching dispersed throughout the film just was so violent and traumatic in a way that I don't think that the filmmakers or the writers really understood what they were doing with that. It just didn't seem like a respectful take in any way and it was hard to get through at a lot of times and the characters were just Helen was so awful and I hate that she's I mean I don't think she's supposed to be perfect but I don't even think she's actually meant to be very mm, likable okay I think that we are supposed to think that she's, she's terrible, awful okay asshole. yeah I think yeah. it's meant to hold up a mirror yeah to that. so I'm yeah. so glad you didn't like it actually <laughs> no, me too I feel like this is gonna make for a very fruitful I think stuff. so too but I'm curious Kira is I didn't look this up and I should have Bernard Rose that's the name of the guy who wrote yes this, right is he white Okay, yes. So Bernard Rose is, oh. he's British. And this movie is based on a short story that was written by Clive Barker mm -hmm. called The Forbidden, which is about the slums in Liverpool. So it was not written truthfully, I think, to actually be necessarily a story about race, right. but just one about this divide within urban cities. Learning so. that this is made by a British filmmaker really shifts a lot of my understanding of this movie because it does feel like one that at least attempts to have a very American identity. And I agree with you, Camille, that there were definitely points where I felt like the storytelling wasn't done with a very empathetic or light hand. But then I did see a lot of nuance in other places and actually probably less than the conversations about race in America. I feel like I the academic study of people aspect of it felt very like real to me and interesting yeah and that is a more international i think it is too i also think what's universal about this is that it's true that within urban areas there's there is such a huge economic and social divide in lived experience and i think that's part of the point made both in the short story and in the film and more so how is it that when you are the person with the wealth or with the privilege, how do you approach the community that lacks that and vice versa? How do they see each other? How do they interact with each other, etc.? Yeah. Let's go over what a slasher movie is and how this sort of fits into the genre. The p people are dying at the hands of somebody 
in very close proximity to them with an iconic weapon. This time it's the hook of mm-hmm. Candyman, which is pushed into his nub of an arm. And the supernatural flair is that the way Candyman appears in your life is that he's summoned. So it's if you are deigning to disparage him as a myth and a legend and like you dare to say his name five times in a mirror, you call him into your life and that's how you meet your end. I thought that it was so smart and interesting for this film to start out with the telling of a murder by Candyman in the context of a white suburban environment. Yeah. Especially one where we, when we meet the girl, she's babysitting, her shirt's off, she's in her bra, this they're gonna have sex. They're gonna have sex. Yeah, she's a little slutty girl. So I, this is what I loved actually, and I thought was so clever about this movie as a slasher movie too, is that the whole opening sequence leads you to believe that it's gonna be some kind of movie that it really isn't. It's like, as you said, Annika, all the people in the beginning, they're all white. Even Helen, who you see eventually mm-hmm. after the story. And the way that the story is shown to you as it's being told is exactly like Halloween, exactly like Black yeah. Christmas. That POV shot of the camera coming up to the house. And- I think that's something that we get in the 90s because the slasher movies started in the late 70s and went through the 80s. And so the 90s are so fun because even though Candyman isn't it's not a scream or an urban legend or a final destination it's not created to be this like meta commentary but it still has elements of that and there is still that like intertextuality and self-awareness and we'll talk about that more next week but it's really fun when you hit the 90s and you have this knowledge of how a slasher works and you get to see filmmakers playing with it a little bit more and i love the way that it situates the difference in relationship that white communities in america have with urban legends than black and brown communities in the u.s that for white communities it's a very silly thing maybe it has to do with sexuality that she was she makes boys say it into the mirror and then when we move into the environment of experiencing it through black americans eyes where there's so much more lived fear and horrifying things are happening all the time Mm -hmm. it's interesting this is the perfect segue i think the two things i feel we should couch the entirety of this conversation within are one this quote that comes soon after we see the sequence and learn about the legend of Candyman, which is from Helen's husband, who is also a lecturer. I wrote down the quote and I like paused it and was like, this is not only like great for the movie, but great for situating all of our conversations about horror in general. Basically, Trevor delivers this thesis while he's giving like this lecture to his students and Helen comes in and sits down and he says, urban legends are the unselfconscious reflection of the fears of urban society. I was so excited when I he know. said that. I was so excited when he said that too. Yes, Anika. No, I'm just realizing that the story that Helen hears at the beginning where the like unconscious fear is a fear of sexuality and in her own life her husband is cheating on her with a child. Exactly. It's oh, just like, that is what like white women are afraid of in the U.S. at this point in time. Also, I will say, I do feel a lot of what this movie may be hinting at too is that the fear that is that we have or that people have of like blackness and black communities and black men is in itself a legend and a myth mm. because it's an unselfconscious yeah. 
reflection of the fears of the urban society. So that, I think, is one really important thing that we should keep in mind throughout the entire discussion. And then the other thing, I think, is the way that we're really told the origin story of Candyman in adenosine where Helen meets that man named Purcell and like she's with her husband and I think it really concretizes what you were saying too Annika about the fear of women at that time about like their men their husbands sleeping with yes go ahead but also while commenting on like the inherent difference of fear between white women and women of color in that you can see like with her friend there's an entirely different level of fear that Helen clearly is like Mm -hmm. immune to anyway but that man was just so Hard. Yeah, yeah, gross. Okay, but so the little story that he tells about the origins of Candyman, it's so dense and honestly, it says so much about the whole, I feel like it gives the meaning of the whole movie away, like in the first 10 minutes mm. in that telling of the story. So basically what he tells everyone at the table is that Candyman is the son of a slave who got wealthy because he built a machine that could mass produce shoes after the Civil War. And Candyman, therefore, was this well-educated young man because his father had enough money to send him to good schools, etc., etc. And he was a gifted painter. He was very good at making portraits. So this wealthy landowner commissions him to paint a portrait of his daughter. And they fall in love. They have sex. She gets pregnant. And dad is, like, not having that. And so he hires a group of men to deal with Candyman. They take him to Caprini Green and they saw off his right arm, and they steal honey and then smother him in it and then unleash a whole hive of bees on him, and he's stung to death. So that's the story. And I feel like in that story, there is it already says so much about race and relationships. Yeah. Already in that story, you have this the whole preface of black people becoming affluent and rising through society and gaining opportunity, mm-hmm. but then again being made the villain and always in service to white communities. That's the only way that they can gain any form of agency. And then there's this whole commentary, right, on the fact that they take him to Caprini Green just to kill him, and Caprini Green being this place that's full of the myth of lawlessness and like a complete lack of moral grounds. Um, I think both of these ideas and everything that they allude to should be the lens through which we have the rest of this conversation. Yeah. Yeah. God. Yeah, and I think Bernadette is, she's such a clear example of that story. She is clearly someone who has been able to enter these more affluent communities, but still she is killed by the spirit of racist violence, this generational trauma. It doesn't keep her safe even. Mm-hmm. I'm going to add two things, two more things actually very quickly to keep in mind throughout the conversation. One is that Caprini Green is like a well-known area of Chicago. It's the north side of Chicago. It's a real place. And it has a storied history of being like a socially developed space that is the projects and et cetera, et cetera. All that is true and fairly well represented in this film and in several others that are made about that place. The other thing that I think is very interesting and worth noting is that the person they reference who was killed in Caprini Green, Ruthie Jean, is a real person, and she was killed in real life. And another thing that's true is that some of the apartments did not have a wall between them behind the medicine cabinets. That was real. That was not Uh, like a poetic device or anything like that. It was true that you could just take the medicine cabinet out and then get into the other apartment. I think everything I just described that are real true facts that the movie is based on 
just emphasize that it is a commentary on gentrification and the process mm-hmm. of organizing people in urban spaces, like redlining, all of that. I ap- appreciate the actual realness behind a lot of those aspects. I think that's important. Did they film at Cabrini Green? I actually don't know if they... I, I w- read the Wikipedia page. Okay. And I, I think that... I think they did film some of it there. I remember at least reading about the... Maybe the producer and the director going to Cabrini yeah. Green with policemen to protect them while they, like, scoped it out. Oh, my God. So yeah. another, which is ironic because I think the other component of this movie is it's, I feel like the whole story of Ruthie Jean was really meant to be, like, a story about the level of distrust that these communities yeah. had for, yeah. like, authorities and yeah. the police especially. Also, this is 1992, which is the year of the L.A. riots, so I feel like mm. it really is. Also, the police riots in New York under Giuliani, so. And just the fact that they keep it keeps being this recurring thing of people try to call the cops to come and protect them exactly. and they will not come. No. And then this white woman gets hurt Her. in the same building and they're there immediately and she gets saved and she's fine. Completely. Like, do we, do you know the month that this movie came out in? October. It was in October. It, it opened in, on October okay. 16th in 1992. So the LA riots were from April to May yeah. in 92. And the... End of April to three days before early May. he came out in theaters, a seven-year-old was shot and killed. Oh my god! Green. Oh my um, god! Yeah, wow. Um, and I keep saying cap. It's cat. It's a bee. Sorry. It's hard Cabrini. to say. Cabrini green. Cabrini. Yeah, it's a bit of a tongue twister. Anyway, so a lot of point, like a lot of yeah. poignance in the year that this is like a very poignant statement as a film, accentuated by its its historical context. Just going along with that, I feel like the one time that they really made a statement about race in the film is when Bernadette and Helen are walking into is it University of Chicago that they're at? I assume. I would also assume. They're like walking around the campus and it's a shot from above like way far above and it's so it's the audio is obviously recorded over and Helen says it's after she's been attacked in the bathroom and she said two people die at Cabrini Green and they knew nothing and then a white woman gets attacked and all of a sudden they close it down and another frustration I had with the movie was that that was the only time or at least what I can remember the only time in the movie where they really explicitly say something like that it just felt like a way to be like oh we're gonna connect these two dots a little bit but we're just gonna reference it at this one point and it, it feels like it was like added in later in the filming process kind of thing. I, I agree with you. They don't simply talk about race hardly ever. Yeah. But I do think that they are, they don't ever forget about it. There is consistent commentary mm-hmm. around it. I just think that because in this movie, we are, of course, I think acutely aware of each individual character's race and like what it means for them. I'm really just honing in on Bernadette. But... There's this moment when Bernadette and Helen are talking to Anne-Marie for the first time, Mm -hmm. and that was a scene that I felt was a little on the nose and a little, like, heavy-handed generally, but Anne-Marie says something like, sorry, it's just, like, when white people come around, it's usually not good or helpful, and then Helen says, we intend no harm or something like that. She says, we, and then Bernadette gets this look on her face, Mm -hmm. this, like, very pained look of she has been marginalized from both communities yeah. in this context. And I also think 
just watching the way that Bernadette would respond emotionally to these deaths in a way that Helen could not at all access. There's a point when Bernadette said something like, a kid just got shot there the other day. And then Helen says, every day. And it was like a clear moment of Bernadette humanizing the deaths of this literal child got killed. And then Helen looking at it as purely lore of every day someone gets killed there. Mm. Like she's detaching it from like the real human grief. I think what's so interesting about the relationship between Helen and Bernadette, and like you've described so aptly, I think a lot of the tension in their relationship, I think it comes from perhaps Bernadette's understanding of this as a lived experience to some people, whereas for Helen, it's not something she's ever had to actually live through and she's purely interested for academic reasons there's no part of her that's interested in looking at the life of poverty or adversity and like trying to do anything to improve it or change it or even acknowledge that it's real all she cares about is the fact that these people think that there's a man with a hook in Mm -hmm. his arm killing people like she has no interest in the nature of their reality compared to hers whereas i think bernadette is acutely aware of the fact that these people live with the consequences of their circumstance in a way that helen does not and i think she even tries to like say to helen we can't just walk into this neighborhood or area and expect people to be open and willing to engage with us. And she's, we, we when they're driving up, she's, we look like cops. They're going to think we're cops. And Helen doesn't, like, understand. No clue. Like, that whole interaction from them driving up to Cabrini Green until they leave or, like, they cut to a different scene is so, you can just tell that Helen is not aware of shit, no. basically. Yeah. Helen is in this girl boss. Nothing <laughs> I refuse to have fears, and Bernadette is like, there are actually some things to fear here, and also, (laughs) this is literally where people live, it's not just like a little, you can't just like stroll into an apartment building and start taking pictures and expect that was going to be chill about that. Yeah, Yeah. completely. I also feel like Bernadette in a lot of ways is obviously she's not the equivalent of the gas station men or anything like that, but she is very much the harbinger of like, you need to rectify your entitled attitude towards all of these people's lives and their stories and just recognize that you don't own this because you can tell a story about it. Like, you don't even own it because you can see it. It's not yours. She's almost a Franklin adjacent. I mean, very different from Franklin, but like from Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but like Franklin in the way, and I think that this isn't something that we've discussed, but the trope of a voice of reason or like a character or not that it's their only identity as a character, but a character that is trying to create a little bit more of a grounding experience for some of the horror characters who are not as self-aware. By virtue of needing to be self-aware. Both yes, of yeah, right? yeah. Yeah. Who navigates the world in a wheelchair and Bernadette is like a black woman, particularly a black woman. In, in academia. academia. Yeah. In the 90s in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I read something in the horticulturist that offered an interpretation of this movie as one about boundaries and how we manufacture boundaries within urban spaces obviously physically but then also just between people and class and all of that and they posit that Candyman is is significant and important as a villain and impressive as a villain in this movie 
or not as a villain, but just as the evil, quote-unquote, in this movie, because mm-hmm. he is one who can transgress all, through all of the boundaries. He isn't held back by physical barriers or social or cultural barriers either. Um, and I think that's the way for us to segue into a conversation about who the villain is yeah. in this film. Yeah. Okay, well, I, can, I can take a crack at yeah, it. Yeah, take a crack at it. Well, Go I for think it. broadly... <laughs> I think broad, I think broadly the villain is racism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like structural racism, unresolved generational trauma and lack of reparations and difference in social standing. But then also in a more first level horror way, we see images of Candyman like killing people when there is a legend of his being recounted, but the murders we are led to believe might be committed by Helen, but Helen really refuses to even consider the possibility that these things could be happening at her hand. And so there is something about the white person in this space, like enacting the violence, but blaming it on this. I'm curious if Candyman exists or not, because a common theme in horror is figuring out if the horror is imagined or not. So thinking about a movie like The Babadook or Hereditary, where you're... (laughs) Yeah, completely. You're... Or if you guys have seen The Night House, a lot of them don't actually provide you with an answer, which I find so frustrating and also very important, right? Because they want you to draw your own conclusions. I wonder if there's a reading of this film where Candyman does not exist at all. The murders have been happening through the medicine cabinets by a real person and Helen is killing... It's all in her head because we see the video of her... strapped to the table when she thought that Candyman was there when we saw Candyman there as the viewer and then the psychologist plays it back and he's not there so I'm wondering so this is I'm so glad you're saying all of this because this was one of the tropes I wanted to hit on Mm. the unreliable narrator yeah boom which is what Helen is yeah the course of this movie sorry I also say it's just occurring to me I hadn't considered this Camille or Kiara either of you I haven't (laughs) considered it before but the fact that like these kind of periods of blackouts and then coming back in after mm-hmm. having committed violence mm-hmm. after she gets hit in the head with the hook makes me feel like yeah maybe she is she's so, experiencing acute like brain trauma in a lot of the movies that are towing that line between real and imagined the theme is mental health so it's it's depression it's like BPD, it's blackouts, it's rage, it's whatever it is. And again, not a great read on mental illness, as we know that horror traditionally does not provide like a nuanced, like social justice definition of things a lot of the time. But so yeah, Helen is being cheated on by her husband. Her husband is cheating on her with one of his students. There's obviously a lot of shit going on there. Is she disassociating? Is there some mental illness going on that is causing her murder blackouts, basically. That's what I like, I think, though, about her getting hit on the head. Is yeah. That it's, it feels less lazy than, ooh, she's that psychotic, crazy woman. Yeah. Unquote. It's like, sometimes when people experience concussions, they then have, like, intense personality switches. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like it could just be, not just, but... Yeah, completely. It could have been spawned from a head injury. Which is an urban legend becoming real in so many ways. Yeah, and I think, so what I also think was interesting about this plot 
the gang members who come into the bathroom when Helen coaxes Jake, that young boy, into telling her more about Candyman, they were a gang traipsing around Cabrini Green intentionally as Candyman, so that the myth and the legend of him would, and the fear of him, therefore, would transfer over to them as a gang. And then when she confronts them and sends them to jail, there's like this, oh, okay, so he's not real. Nobody has to fear him. Mm. Like, she reassures Jake of that. Mm. Police station, too. She's like, no, he's not something you need to be scared of. He's in prison now. And it's only then that Helen really meets Candyman. This is way into the movie after yeah. she's said Candyman five times in the mirror, which was way before. It's like she says Candyman five times in the mirror with Bernadette. They go to Cabrini Green. They meet Jake. They meet Anne-Marie. They, Helen goes through the weird portals of Cabrini Green, like going through the, the mirrors, through these apartments, literally through mm-hmm. Candyman's mouth at one point, painted on the wall as a mm-hmm. mural. All of these things happen. Then she tries again to go back, gets assaulted in the bathroom, puts this guy away, and only then does she meet Candyman. And the way she meets him, I think, is just so epic. It's like her in the parking lot, just feeling so triumphant because she has these photos that Bernadette was able to save for her from the camera that was completely smashed up. And he just starts by being a voice in her head saying, Helen. And like, literally in that moment watching this movie I got goosebumps and like chills ran down my spine. The guy who plays Candyman in this movie is Tony Todd and I think he did such an amazing job. Yeah. Oh my god his voice is just so good. They originally wanted Eddie Murphy but they could not afford him and I'm glad that they couldn't. I'm so glad. Yeah. I would not have been able to take it seriously. Oh my god. No No, he's a he's also and Forgive me if you were going to drop this fact, but they used real bees. And he was stung 23 times and got $1,000. He negotiated getting $1,000 for each bee sting. Hell yeah. That's right. That's an amazing negotiation. Okay. I like the line between the supernatural and the real. Mm -hmm. Like the moments that it feels like so murky that it's undeniable that it might be a little bit supernatural. And one of those is when she's in the bathroom and she opens the toilet and it's full of bees. Bees. And I also just have to say back to the conversation Kiari mentioned about the kid with the kid and um, Helen. Helen. That to me is one of the most deplorable moments in the movie on her part that she's like giving this kid advice without recognizing that like the life that this child leads, you cannot provide the same comfort like it isn't that now the bad guy has been captured and he's safe it's like you have put him in a position where he is actually not safe anymore mm. I do think back to the question of who's the villain at the very least if Helen hadn't demanded that she go investigate Candyman this round of violence would not have happened there was a direct like she threw her kind of invasion into this space and unleashed yes even if, if Candyman is a supernatural force then she triggered him by not believing in him and speaking she, in it air. is her fault completely but then if Candyman doesn't exist she is like triggering these people by invading it's about space. trauma in that way too right it's about inviting these people to relive the trauma that yeah. they experienced in the past and again in the name of your stupid academic paper that like they don't give a shit about and that will have no real impact on like the quality of their life and i love how being like 
Do you want us to have a shitty paper or a good one, Bernadette? <laughs> yeah, no, literally. I find that so much of this movie costs Helen in such a poor light. We see in so many other horror movies, follow the bad guy. And that is the perspective through which you see and experience everything. Through their motivations, through their desires. That's what I saw Helen as. In the universe of this movie, what's potentially happening if Helen isn't just having a mental breakdown is that Candyman is... Okay, so Helen was the woman that Candyman painted when he and they were lovers, and she obviously did not prevent his death in that iteration of the story. This is the origin story of Candyman, okay. right? That he was commissioned to make this painting of a woman and of the this landowner's oh, daughter. I didn't and realize that okay. Helen is the reincarnated version of this woman, and what he's doing is coming back to get her, like, which is why I was saying earlier that it's her fault, right? Like, she is there provoking him and, like, his, like, his long game and long taunt with her is sort of him trying to get her to just submit herself to him and be, like, and, like, just hand her life over, essentially. And he does force her to do that, right? Because he isolates her. He, like, frames her constantly for taking Anthony, the baby, and mm-hmm. Marie's baby, beheading her dog. Then when it comes to the psychiatric ward that she's in, she summons him. And knowing what's going to happen in that room with the psychiatrist, she's like, yes, I can prove it to you. He's real. And then she summons him, and he comes in, and he kills the psychiatrist, releases her, gives her the means to escape so that she can go. And then she's further isolated, right? And Mm -hmm. then she she comes to the realization through all of this, too, that her husband is cheating on her Mm -hmm. because she tries Mm -hmm. to go home. And that's the first thing she does when she gets out of that mental institution. And what does she find? Her husband and his, like, hot, sweet, young fling painting the walls of their apartment. So... That's one read, I would say, of this, and it's like a tortured love story, and that's what the role of Helen is. I felt very confused about why he had chosen Helen, Candyman had chosen Helen, and why, what Helen's connection to everything was, and yeah, I that was completely lost on me, and that's amazing, and when I saw, it really reminded me of The Shining a lot, when you see the photo of Jack from a million years ago or whatever, seeing the portrait of her, but it, and I just didn't put it together. That's what he initially painted. And now that I'm thinking about it, the woman that he fell in love with was pregnant. And so also kidnapping Anthony is a way to create their family. That's amazing. 100%. I also, I had failed to do any analysis of what the connections between those two people might be. And it's striking me that the, does she have a name in the Candyman story? I don't remember. Or is remember. she just the daughter? I think she's just the daughter. Okay. Yeah. So in that story, it is an example of the both this like this like white woman and this black man engaging equally in a consensual Central. relationship, mm-hmm. but the stakes for him are insurmountably higher than hers. Like she's fine and he gets lynched in this horrible way. And she did have the power to not have put him in a position Mm -hmm. where he would have had to lose his life, but she's not thinking about the stakes. And then Helen in present day is doing Doing the the same thing. thing. Exactly. And so in that way, the villain is white guilt. And it would make sense, even if we're analyzing it as Helen, as just going through a psychotic break, like it would make sense that this would be the story she would have crafted in her mind. It's like, I'm the reincarnation of her. Wow. And something Kara and I just talked about very briefly is like sometimes with horror movies 
it's either intentional commentary or on the time or it's just so steeped in its time that it's revealing such clear obvious mm -hmm. and it's interesting when you can't tell the difference i feel mm -hmm. like in this movie there were times that i couldn't really tell the difference a hundred percent i think it's okay to interpret a movie without knowing the exact intentions of why it was created. And I think that, again, gives you more freedom to explore your own ideas and interpretation. It really does strike me that watching horror from another time really does reveal so much more about that time than like a rom-com or comedy. And that's because we are always experiencing a lot of fear and mm -hmm. what we are experiencing that fear towards shifts. But fear is the underlying thing, I feel like, always in, in the US and probably like everywhere. And to know like what people are afraid of is to understand everything in a lot of ways. Completely. That was a great knife drop. Thanks, I loved babe. that. That was fantastic. <laughs> okay, just to take us back to the yeah. what we were on before. Oh, you want to talk about the movie? Yes, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> How dare I? Okay, in this universe, right, where Helen is a reincarnation of Candyman's lover what's striking me now too camille about what you were saying too about like how he really just wanted to reassemble his family is how he does bring them all together mm -hmm. in that heap of trash the baby is there helen is there <laughs> in the heap there. of trash, trash. Outside. outside so another thing that i also <laughs> yeah. i love reuniting my family in the heap of trash or like abandoned belongings you know, just maybe abandoned belongings probably the better way to the put it that right? like that's more poetic and i think that's what was intended right is that here yeah. is this pile of neglected things and here is this lovely little family to go along with it really like a heartwarming scene it's when they lovely. set fire to it and the bees are everywhere everywhere i was reading about like the history of cabrini green i read a time article about it and there was they interviewed somebody who did live there and one of the things he really drove home in his interview is that like the sense of community that they built amongst themselves because mm. they were so holistically neglected by the city and they just had to take care of themselves i thought really actually came across in those scenes when the whole community would come together to burn the pile of neglected things like when the whole community came together after helen saved anthony and was being buried because she dies like they all show up and drop the hook in her yeah in her grave and i feel like part of that so part of that i think is about them understanding and respecting the fact that like the way you live on is through myth and legend and that's how mm. they would m mythify and legendify helen out of respect for her like saving anthony the baby and i guess empowering her to be a I don't know, actually. I'm torn about what it really is. But I do think it's cool that in the end, Helen is given that opportunity to exact a revenge on her husband who wronged her. Although I don't know if Helen really is worthy of that power, but she does get it. Yeah. And she comes back as the equivalent of Candyman. Yeah. In the end. To have such a loveless funeral was like so heartbreaking that the kind of only warmth I felt that was brought to that space was these people coming from the outside to actually mm -hmm, honor her mm -hmm. and her fucking husband. Yeah. Why she invited him? I will say that she murdered so many people. And I do think what? that her husband, I don't, I'm not defending Trevor at all, but uh, fair. You know, like she did kill people and then 
come home and terrorize him and his girlfriend and like <laughs> okay come on <laughs> I know. Like it makes sense that she had a loveless funeral. Like their relationship and Helen as a person was complicated. How she even got a funeral? Yeah. Like she didn't need that funeral. Okay, I just have to. I just have to say it, or else I won't be able to stop thinking about it. Helen crawling out of the trash pile with her oh my really gosh, bald head. Oh my god. She looks like Truly. a fetus emerging from a womb. Wow. Yeah, she Was did. that supposed to be what she looks like? Probably. It can be, yeah. Oh my god, the Why funeral pop. She's being born again. Yes, <gasps> literally. As an urban legend. Oh my god, Annika, amazing. Yes, completely. I think you're totally right about that. I think it's a good read. I was like very surprised from like a technical angle how the baby survived oh God, that no, completely Camille literally okay when I first <laughs> watched this movie and I saw her cr- crawling out of the I was my jaw dropped when the baby came out from under her I was like there is no way there is absolutely no way that child was under her while she was climbing like literally combat style, and like her she, butt she was on fire. A fire. She I was know, a flame. Really? Like, what? Talk about burning woman or man. But I'm, this movie obviously doesn't abide by the laws of science. And maybe yeah. that is a level of lore. Like that mm. is like folklore is like a tall tent, like it's expanded Completely. reality. And like, oh, yeah, that yeah. kid would not have survived how long Candyman had it in the basement or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And it fed, he, he fed him honey. Or something. He put something in his mouth at one point. <laughs> he gave him smoked bees. Something. I think it was honey, right? That might just. I might have. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, you can't feed babies honey from your finger? <laughs> okay, so actually, okay, one question I actually do have, and I think maybe we've answered it, but something that did puzzle me when watching this movie is Candyman's willingness to kill innocent people. And he does he does peg it on Helen, I think, in the parking lot. He says to her, like, you've dismissed my legend and my myth, and now I must... Shed innocent yeah, blood. To... Oh, I also love the line, be my victim. I think that's so good. I think which is I, what Candyman says. I read it as him, like, performing the, ro- the role that the people who murdered him projected onto him. Mm. That he is, okay, you want a villain, I'll give you a villain type mm. thing. Yeah. And I do think the be my victim, like framing his, the love of his life, the mother of his future child as like his victim. Also be asking permission for somebody to be your victim is also flipping the idea of victim. Because if you're consenting to be a victim... Are you a victim? By becoming a victim, she becomes a legend. Yeah, and until she chooses to become a victim, other people keep. Yeah. Everyone else keeps getting killed. Yeah. 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 Until she does, yeah. I also think it's interesting. I liked the phrasing at one point he used. He was like, believe in me, be my victim. Yeah. And I think that also summarizes what we're saying here. I like the way that they continue to weave in, like, references to urban legends throughout even as they're exploring all of these other things i shouldn't say this out loud on a recorded thing but i'm gonna do it for the podcast do it for the pod (laughs) i believe in ghosts because i think that if i were to not believe in ghosts i would get haunted by ghosts Mm. 
You know what I mean? It's like that idea of if you don't believe in it, they want to prove you wrong. That's the thing with Candyman, right? Is if you have to, you're safe if you believe to a certain extent. If you don't push back, if you don't question it, you're safe. And the minute that you start questioning, questioning it, it, okay, it you, you die. That if you didn't didn't exactly. Okay, so that's yeah. exactly why I think it's cool as a device to summon him because it is that, right? It's like, it's the most overt way to challenge his existence and mm-hmm. his reality is to mm-hmm. be like, yeah, come and get me. And then he does. I wanted to ask you guys, too, exactly about what you're getting at, Camille. Like, this thing where we ch- what we choose to believe in steers our behavior and mm. away from things that are potentially threatening and harmful so that we are safe from them. My question for both of you is, what myth or legend or thing did you grow up believing that steered you away from... Mm. Yeah, That's and but you, you've already boasted it, like God and ghosts, I think, are both, like... God and ghosts. Yeah, myths and legends. <laughs> no, but, like, in a more, like, practical way. What are some... In both ways, I think, like, in... Yeah. I think that, honestly, Santa Claus would make me cry as a child because I was so afraid I was going to get coal. Mm, like, to mm. being a bad kid? Yeah, so I was, like, really on yeah. my best behavior September through Completely. December. yeah. But the rest of the year, you're like, fuck it. I was very afraid of Bloody Mary, actually, and I would never say that in the mirror. Do you have any? I had tried to think of some, and I couldn't really remember any in particular. Watching this movie just made me think about all these things that we live by as a society that are just kind of things we've made up over time that we Mm -hmm. let ourselves believe so we can keep ourselves safe and away from harm. I never walk on the ladders if that's yeah. if that well, counts. And I think back to superstition, like I do think that some of them I'm sure do come from something. Like I'm sure not don't walk under a ladder is because like ladders might fall and hurt you. Yeah. But then I do think that there are other ones that actually have no purpose. And I think my thesis about why is that we live in a world that we like mostly cannot control at all and that's really like scary and so to be able to identify like some ways that we can feel some semblance of control in a world that we like have no control over like if i don't step on that crack bad things won't happen if i don't do this bad things won't happen and it's like bad things are gonna happen i still will step over cracks not because i think that it'll (laughs) break my mother's back but i don't know it's like kind of fun to like when you're walking yeah, to yeah, reach for certain really. things. Also, growing up, my mom told me that if I went to bed with my ponytail in, my hair would fall off at the where the ponytail was. <laughs> so I never did that. It's oh not. That's not true, by the way. It won't. Ha- it won't happen. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not true. I used to go to sleep with a ponytail. Parents know the psychic weight of what I, they do when they say things to us. I don't, still don't know that's not true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That Helen says Candyman five times and Bernadette, Bernadette only says it four times. Because I think she, she is what we're saying, right? Like she's, yeah. she's much like us. I think she would align with the outside of the table here, which is that don't fuck with it. Yeah, like, yeah. It's out there. It's real to people. Don't push I, it. I don't want to question it. What is Trevor? What is Trevor? What is Trevor's role in this, in that dynamic's role in this movie? I think there is maybe a sense or a tension at this point, perhaps in the 90s, that the perfect family is a myth too, that it's not real. You won't just be this picture-perfect couple where you pursue your very intellectual and academic thoughts and endeavors and live a happily ever after sort of story. I love the way that their relationship is portrayed in the movie because it has this security. They have this kind of like loveless, infidelity-based 
relationship and I love at the end, which I also think is a very interesting commentary on gender and masculinity and male expectations is the kind of the scene where you see Stacy, you see her making dinner and oh god, she, she just oh. like oh my god oh my god so, I forgot she that. like takes a slab of meat. uncooked meat and cuts oh. it up and puts it in a salad and then we have that cut with Helen making this yeah. beautiful pasta dinner for them and he's like in the bathroom crying about it that was a sad funny yeah one. yeah completely but yeah it, it was interesting to also see that and see he's so unhappy because Stacy is not adhering to the rules of femininity and being a wife because she's like 20 and she doesn't know that he wants the fancy dinner made. But then also thinking about like that scene when it actually happens in the movie where Helen makes him dinner and he comes home from work and he sits down and everything's ready and she like gives him a hug and it's it's this very like stereotypical like heteronormative situation that is is very out of place and in the 90s is also like a dated idea of idea yeah exactly but the way that he's so like stuck in that and wants that so bad and is so disappointed. It's now occurring to me after you shared Camille that like in the way that like Helen initially views black people as like interchangeable and disposable, Mm -hmm. I feel like Trevor views white women as the same. Yeah. And so I think that maybe him crying in the bathroom is him like realizing that they are people and that they will be different from one another and you can't just swap out a newer model. I did wonder if Helen met Trevor in a similar fashion because she is a grad student and he is a professor. Oh, yeah. And That's great. That's yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it does feel like that is another equivalency of the kind of the way that like cycles continue until they are broken. Yeah, completely. Especially because Helen, too, takes a kind of subordinate role voluntarily under him as someone who's less advanced in her academic career. Like, she she comes to him and, like, tries to get him to help her and advise her and do all this stuff. So there was one other question which I think is interesting in this movie, now that we're at this stage where we're talking about the end, too. I feel like there are arcs of revenge here, right? There's the revenge or the avenging of Candyman with Helen, and then there's Helen doing that with her husband, Trevor. What did you two make of that? Did you find it satisfying? Did you feel vindication? Did it, did anything feel neatly tied up? I think that's what I struggled with this movie. And now that we're talking about it, I think some of the connections are being made. But I felt like it was a little... They tried to do too much and it felt like a lot of loose ends and it felt chaotic. I But I did, with that said, I did like him calling her in the mirror and her coming. I thought that was very cool. And I don't know if either of you read The Forbidden. It's really different. But at the end of the short story, she the last couple lines are about how she wishes that her husband saw her dead body and was haunted by it. And I really like enjoyed reading that and connecting it to the story and the fact that in the film she actually does get to to haunt him i didn't like the way that they very quickly and to me hastily tried to tie up so many things they wanted to give a satisfying ending where i don't think that there necessarily needed to be one and i actually think trying to Mm -hmm. tie things up made it a little bit 
like it weakened it a bit. I just thought it was like Helen coming back as the new Candyman. It did feel kind of hokey to me. What did you think? Yeah, it felt kind of hokey to me too, I have to say. I really enjoyed the interpretation of this movie as like Candyman trying to get back at the system and the woman that let his life become the mess that it was. And I just did not think she should have been given the same... It's going to sound crazy, but I don't think she should have been given the same honor that he was. Yeah. In that he got to live on that way as a myth and a legend. And I just don't think she was worthy in comparison. That's a really good point. Definitely. I, I, it, to me, at the end, it felt a bit like they were trying to make her an equal somehow. Her story in some way was like she was modern. Do you know what I mean? Like she was like... She, like, suffered she, she in suffered, her life. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And then, therefore, she deserved this kind of redemption in I, the end. I, thought, I wasn't sure if they were trying to curse her with that rather than give her something. That, that it is, like, a unique hell to have to live eternally as this hurt, angered mm-hmm. ghost figure that is just, like, flying around murdering people. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's, like, in the way that generational trauma continues until it is, like, broken and healed... I feel like maybe Candyman, what they did was, like, let Candyman lay to rest and make Helen... But he wasn't laid to rest. Is he still alive? He's still Candyman, too. Where is he? I, my interpretation was that she had taken up and he didn't exist anymore because she she killed him in the fire. Yeah. I Uh, thought that the hook was, like, Okay, now it's your time. Yes. Yeah. So maybe that's a testament to him really being in her mind that he... Like, the ghost of the, like, legend does continue to live on. That totally I love that. Sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a nice... That's a good... I like that, too. Yeah, okay. No, I, I see what you're saying. I And I think maybe that's what Candyman wanted, too, right? Is that she would have to take on... Carry the torch on of that legacy. Oh, no, I think you're right, actually. Because she, she's painted in, on the wall in the end. There's, like, a mural of her in fire. Mm-hmm. For whatever reason, I'm very much on Candyman's side. And I'm like, he, oh, yeah. you were the superior... <laughs> the superior <laughs> um, killer. Yeah, and, like, the superior legend. Okay, Camille, having had this conversation, do you still feel the same way that you did at the beginning about this movie? I know that when the movie came out and when it was coming out, there was a little bit of concern for how it was going to be received, especially, well, received by black audiences. And I know that some people who reviewed it were very upset with it, but I still think that what it's trying to say about racism is interesting and it's making a good observation and also falls really short in a lot of ways and is very upsetting and deals with violence, especially violence against the black community in a very casual way at times in the film. And I think that we are in a privileged position now to watch it as an almost like an archival document, a Mm -hmm. cultural document that we can analyze and look at. But the people that were existing in the world when it came out were going to have to experience the direct consequences of people watching the movie and receiving it and analyzing it however they would imagine that this fueled rather than dismantled a lot of treatment of black and brown people in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And I just think it's so funny knowing that the person who made it was British, unaware of the nuance of race in America. I think entirely. I'm I'm really amazed that he chose to tackle such a huge like subject matter yeah. 
in a country that he isn't from, for a country that he isn't from. So I'm very interested in your take on how the movie fell short, in part also Mm -hmm. because the guy was British, but also like when I first watched this movie and I didn't, I had the image of that woman dying in the very beginning of this movie when she's in the bathroom and like the blood rips through the ceiling. Like that, just that alone was ingrained in my mind. That was my only impression of this movie for the longest time Um. because I saw it when I was really young. The first time I watched it, at least, I was, like, actually quite impressed by the way that they handled race. I was like, for 1992, this is actually pretty, this seems pretty polarizing. Like, I could imagine, Mm -hmm. like, this being quite a bold film on race in America. Mm -hmm. Maybe I just gave it too many props for being provocative or provocative-seeming. Like, I have no idea what it would have been like, as you said, Annika, to be on the receiving end of that and living in the times that they were living in. But... It did seem very, wow, you're hitting on so many things about, like, how communities are really marginalized here, Mm -hmm. like, how dismissive the mainstream is of the life that they have to lead. When she goes into the Candyman cave the first time. I like that. Candyman Candyman cave. And sees the candy with the razor blades in it. I thought that that was so interesting because that is also an urban legend. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For her to go into this space and have that like urban legend be tangibly real as well right in front of her is interesting yeah yeah do we know why he's called Candyman? because of the honey yeah and i think it's so the thing that is constantly sort of plastered on the walls everywhere helen sees it in graffiti when she meets Anne-Marie, I think, and mm. when she goes into that bathroom, it's I think it's feces that yeah. writes, like, sweets, sweets to the sweet. Yeah. And I think that's something from... I think it's from Hamlet, and I think it's it, it's meant to mean good things should happen to good people. Oh. oh sweets to the sweet. Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people. Yeah. That's, yeah. We have to function in order to let people live in conditions like that is believing that like you're right that they they deserve it somehow wow because otherwise it's just fucking crazy (laughs) (laughs) i just again want to read this quote yeah please do that the concept of urban legends and modern oral folklore is that they are the unselfconscious reflection of the fears of urban society and how we're always, and this film completely shows and talks about as we've discussed, but every film that we dig through and we talk about, especially slashers of the 80s and 90s, because that was such like a rich time for American politics and race and sexuality and all of these things. Just, yeah, how I love that they say that in this film because that's, it's very, I love saying meta. It's very meta. And I do feel decidedly now that it is indeed a slasher. I feel that way. Yeah. God, I will never forget what it sounds like when he says her name in that parking lot. Mm. I'm going to play it. It's going to scale me. I was scared when I was going to bed. I felt like this movie was scarier in a lot of ways than other movies we watched and maybe it is because i've been able to explain away like how that couldn't happen in my mm-hmm, context because mm-hmm. it's like living in an apartment you were near people more often mm. this was a yeah this was truly an urban horror film <sighs> 
it's not. It's really scary. Isn't that terrifying? That's yeah. Terrifying. Could you imagine if someone was saying your name like that? Mm. Like, I would shit myself, I swear to God. Yeah. I would just like instantly die. I would yeah. just be like this. It's over for me now. I was like, it would come into my ears and I'd be like, it's over. And over it shall be. Thank you all so much for listening to our podcast. We are so, so delighted you decided to be here with us. If you don't already, please follow us on Instagram at wearescaredpod. Email us at wearescaredpod at gmail.com with questions, comments, concerns. We'll be taking a poll soon on Instagram, so be extra sure that you're following us there. You can weigh in on which genre Camille, Annika, and I tackle in our next season. We'd love to hear from you. Have a brilliant, minimally unpleasant summer's day. Let's go, girls.